0: It's the late 3rd century. An old man stagnates in a filthy dungeon beneath the town of Ardashat in the mountains of Armenia, waiting for the embrace of death. For 14 years, the heretic has languished here, it was little more than his faith to sustain him, condemned to die for his unyielding devotion to the teachings of Yeshua, a man from Nazareth who claimed to be the son of the one true God. As the heavy doors of his cell creak open for the first time in 14 years, the outside light almost blinds him as he catches a glance at his emaciated body. It seems the hour of his martyrdom is finally at hand. Or is it? This is the story of Grigor Lasurovich, better known as St. Gregory the Illuminator. Armenia is a small, landlocked country between Azerbaijan, Turkey, Iran, and Georgia. A Christian nation in a sea of Islamic neighbors. How did this happen? Why is the faith of this country never swayed from Christianity? Our story today is how Armenia became the first Christian nation in the world through the persistence of one determined man. As a heads up, there's some mythical elements to this story, and I'll be including them because I don't think it's possible to tell the story without them. So, a bit of history. Jesus was crucified around the year of 30 AD, he had 12 apostles, and those apostles had 70 disciples. Each of these apostles were instructed to spread the faith in a number of different provinces. Through this method, seeds of Christianity were blown from Jerusalem into many pagan provinces of the east. The success of this mission was a bit of a hit and miss. Some of the men were turned away, some were sawed in half, others stoned, some boiled alive. All in all, not a great time to be trying to spread Christianity. Sometime in the first century, two disciples named Bartholomew and Thaddeus are assigned to test the waters of Armenia. Long story short, Bartholomew had his skin peeled off him, and Thaddeus likely suffered a fate just as grisly, and this was Armenia's first introduction to Christianity. Armenia at this time was sandwiched between two expansionist empires the Roman Empire to its west. And the sassanid persian empire to its east paganism was the state religion in both empires and christianity was tolerated at best and harshly persecuted at worst based on the whims of the ruler armenia was used as a kind of bargaining chip between the two huge empires each one not willing to let the other have it and so it remained independent despite this a kind of proxy war existed where both empires would try and put their favorite candidate on the throne so they could exert their influence over the region. It was into this background that Gregory grew up in. But geopolitics aside, Gregory's upbringing was pretty turbulent itself. He was a member of one of the leading families of Armenia, with loose ties and an even looser claim to the throne of Armenia. His father was known as Anak the Parthian, a shady figure with close ties to the Sassanid Empire. Over in the royal courts of the Sassanid Empire, the king, Ardysha I, Convinces Anak to infiltrate the royal Armenian household of Khosrow II and murder him. After a bit of convincing, Anak agrees on the basis that once the king is dead, he will rule Armenia with the backing of the Sassanid Empire. So, under the guise of fleeing persecution from the very Sassanid king who was setting him up, Anak, his wife, and his two sons, one of them being Gregory, seek refuge with Khosrow in his court in Armenia. They're welcomed warmly, and over time, Anak gains the trust of Kozrov, the two become close friends. Then, one day, on a fateful hunting trip, Anak takes his shot, and while the two men are alone, he stabs Kozrov to death. The idea was to make it look like a hunting accident, but it sounds like he made a real mess of it. Boar tusks don't generally hit in the same spot over and over again, I guess. Knowing he'd be in court... Anak runs through the woodlands trying to escape Khosrow's bodyguards, but missteps and falls in a lake and drowns. Meanwhile, back in the royal court, Anak's whole family is ordered to be put to death by the outraged Armenian nobles. But just in the nick of time, his two sons are smuggled out by their nurses. One is taken to Persia and the other, Gregory, is taken to Cappadocia, modern-day Turkey. It seems even from a young age, Gregory's faith was to be preordained, As on the way to Cappadocia, an angel came down from heaven and told the servants that his name was to be Gregory, which apparently meant watchful. The province Gregory and his nurses found themselves in was at this time part of the Roman Empire. Christianity was not the state religion, but pockets of Christianity were present throughout the empire, particularly in the East. Gregory grew up with a very strong Christian influence because of this, and spent much of his time poring over the holy scriptures of the Old Testament. His nurse, Sophia, was also a devoted Christian and it was likely her influence that lit the fire of religious fervour that was to become his most defining feature. The young Gregory was remarked by his tutors to have had a sharp mind and was driven and resolute in completing tasks, but, like any good Christian, all his actions were said to be tempered by modesty and humility. Physically, he was said to be tall, well-made in body and handsome, with a regal air to him. In his early 20s, Gregory takes a wife, Mary, apparently at the insistence of his mother. Gregory and his wife have two children who, according to Christian sources, were able to babble about the Holy Trinity even before they could form full words. Such was the strength of Gregory's holy gift. After the kids are born, and apparently with his mother now placated, Gregory requests a vow of abstinence from his wife in order to pursue his holy mission to spread the word of the Lord to as many people as possible. Mary acknowledges this. I mean, who is she to reject God's will? And they both kind of agree to annul the marriage, I guess. Mary heads off to a nunnery, and the two never speak again. Sources differ as to whether his children went with her or stayed with him. Something tells me there was probably a bit more to this weird, amicable divorce, but hey, that's the story. While the young Gregory pored over his scriptures in Cappadocia, the situation in Armenia had changed drastically. As we mentioned earlier, the throne of Armenia was a bit like a pawn between the Sassanid of the Roman Empire. After Gregory's father had murdered Ardashir, his son, Tiridates III, was smuggled out of Armenia for his own protection until the situation calmed down, much like Gregory. But instead of heading to Cappadocia, Tiridates, as a high-profile ward, was given an excellent pagan education in Rome under the orders of Roman Emperor Aurelian who by chance is the main face that makes the cover art of this podcast. In this power vacuum, a new contender had been placed on the throne, backed by the Sassanids. Ardisha I had got what he wanted. He had a pliable candidate on the Armenian throne. It made no difference to him whether it was Anak or some other stooge. In 270 AD, the now grown-up Tiridates and Aurelian launched a campaign against the Sassanids, and they successfully put Tiridates III on the throne. Tiridates was said to be a strong leader, both physically and mentally. There's a few amusing stories about his strength that I couldn't not share. The first one is that he stopped two charging bulls by grabbing the horns of each of them and smashing them into each other. The second, that he stopped a runaway chariot by taking the reins of the four horses and physically restraining them. The third is that he swam across the Euphrates River. I guess that one's kind of believable. And the fourth is that he cut a troop of elephants to pieces alone. Not sure how many elephants make up a troop, but impressive nonetheless. Aurelian as well was an immensely talented leader, and between a guy that can smash bulls together and a man given the title of Restorer of Worlds, they probably made a good team. Tiridates was seen as a true successor to the Armenian throne, and despite being planted on the throne by an outsider, he is widely accepted with the population, cementing a strong alliance between Armenia and Rome for the future. Back in Cappadocia, Gregory, now in his 20s, is racked with guilt for his father's dishonourable actions and decides to try and seek forgiveness with his son who now sits on the Armenian throne. The sources are somewhat unclear about how exactly Gregory entered the service of Tiridates, either during his campaign to take the throne with Aurelian or just after. However he got there, Gregory becomes a source of sage counsel and restraint for Tiridates and works hard to help him with the administration of his kingdom. Over years, the two become close friends, and Gregory eventually becomes Tiridates' personal confidant and chief advisor. But all the while, Tiridates is unable to get a straight answer of Gregory's origin, where he came from, and why he wandered into his courts all of a sudden. Apparently, Gregory had a knack for deflecting difficult questions such as these. All was well and good between the two best friends, until after a military campaign where Gregory is asked to give thanks to the gods for the Armenian victory. You heard right, gods, not god. As you've hopefully noticed, Gregory took religion, particularly monotheism, pretty seriously. Armenia, like many other pagan states, had a pantheon of gods, and Anahid, the goddess of fertility, water, wisdom and healing, was the most important one to Tiridates. To the amazement and alarm of Tiridates and his entourage, Gregory flat out refuses this very routine order. Quote, God forbid I should obey such an order as this. I came to wait on thee, and with devotedness to obey thy commands, but not to worship thy idols, for they are no gods, but the works of men's hands. After this, he, probably unnecessarily, goes on to compare the king and his court to work horses, saying they are no better than mules, because both of you do not know your true Creator. Probably could have just stopped at the refusal, right? Understandably, Tiridates was shocked at this refusal. And quickly turn to anger, giving Gregory one more time to repent and obey the command. He refuses, and trouble really starts here. Tiridates was apparently both very quick to anger and very protective of his pagan gods. Gregory is thrown in jail immediately. Whatever friendship the two men had was now inseparably broken. Over the next two years, Gregory is brutally tortured, with each torture session more unbearable than the last, the methods are as creative as they are graphic. If there's anyone who's a bit squeamish, well, I'd say skip ahead, but you'll probably miss most of the episode. Here we go. First, heavy stones were saddled onto his shoulders and his hands were tied by his back with his face in the dirt, and he was made to run around like a beast of burden, apparently a retaliation for Gregory's earlier insult about mules. After that, he was tied by one foot on top of a burning trash pile while being beaten by ten men with sticks over the course of seven days. After this, his legs were crushed in a wine press until the bones split. Iron nails were hammered into the soles of his feet and he was ordered to run around. A mixture of salt, pepper and vinegar was poured into his nostrils, apparently to induce some kind of insanity. A sheepskin bag of soot and ash was tied over his head and he was ordered to breathe deeply through it. He was tied upside down, with mass amounts of boiling water being poured down his throat in order to maim and humiliate him due to him having to urinate himself. He was crucified, having his flanks peeled away with iron-hot tongs. There were iron spikes placed all over the floor. He was then dragged across it until there was, quote, not one part of his body that was not pierced. His kneecaps were swollen and then smashed, and he was left to hang upside down for three days, and molten lead is poured all over his back and down his throat. Throughout these torture sessions, Tiridates, who was apparently personally involved, continually requested Gregory to embrace his gods, and then he would be restored to his former greatness, but Gregory refused. Though he doesn't say it, Tiridates is incredulous that this man is still living, despite the brutal pain that he is continually putting him through and this tweaks his interest once again about where exactly this unkillable man came from. One of his men manages to discover Gregory's turbulent past and shares it with Tiridates. Even though everything has now come to light, Tiridates is still confused as how this man is able to continue living, but if there was any intrigue into Gregory's faith, perhaps being his motivation, he doesn't outwardly show it. Having grown bored of torture, Tiridates has him thrown in a pit in the high mountains of Armenia, intending for him to die there. The once esteemed court official will spend the next 13 years in this muddy, reptile-infested pit, his only source of food coming from a local woman who would throw in a loaf of bread to him once a day out of pity. With this whole mess now behind him, Tiridates cracks down on religion in Armenia and sets strict punishments for anyone in his kingdom caught worshipping foreign gods. Meanwhile, over in Rome, Emperor Aurelian had been murdered by his own personal guard. A new emperor, Diocletian, now sat on the throne. Diocletian was an interesting fellow. Though not the military man Aurelian was, he was a very talented administrator. With Aurelian having stabilised the borders, Diocletian was exactly what Rome needed, someone to administer them properly. But for all the administrative skill he had, it didn't help him in the world of love. Diocletian wanted a wife. The story goes, and it's worth taking this story with a big grain of salt, that he commissions the court artists of his to travel far and wide across his empire and paint a portrait of the most beautiful woman they could find. Though many pictures returned to him, he is infatuated with the picture of a young woman who was found on the outskirts of Rome itself. The young girl was named Ripsim, and her beauty stirred something within the emperor immediately. Without waiting for any more pictures to return, he announced that it was her that would be his new bride. The only problem was, Ripsene was Christian, and Diocletian really, really did not like Christians, seeing them as a threat to the stability of his realm. On top of the issue of faith, Ripsene had taken a lifelong vow of chastity too. Bah, a slight hiccup in what would surely be a happy marriage, thought Diocletian, and set plans to travel off to see his new wife in the flesh. The night before his arrival, Ripsene is visited by angels in her dream, who tell her to make haste and flee towards Armenia. The very next day, an angry, and probably horny, Diocletian arrives to find that his new bride has escaped. Though they did their best, Ripsin and her entourage are found, and despite clear objections to him, Diocletian announces that they will wed in Armenia.
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger.
0: After what I can only imagine to be a somber and dreary wedding, Diocletian tries to force himself on her within the wedding chambers. Though Ripsane was much smaller and weaker than Diocletian, she was said to be imbued by the holy strength of God, and through his divine protection, she fought him off for ten solid hours. Eventually, she escapes from him, but is caught again, and Diocletian, in his fury, orders her to be roasted alive, disemboweled, with her eyes gouged out. So much for the protection of God, right? After the grisly deed is complete, Diocletian himself weeps at the wickedness of Christianity and how it causes insanity in his people. And much like Tiridates, he starts a series of intense persecutions of Christianity across his empire, destroying churches, banning clergy from meeting, and confiscating church property. So, unlike the rest of the story, Diocletian's great purges of Christianity were well known, and it's very likely that the Christian sources who told this tale were eager to besmirch his character even more. Like I said, take the above story with a grain of salt, but summarised, Christianity was definitely not the safest religion to be practising or preaching at this time. As Diocletian and Tiridates cracked down hard on the Christians, God cracks down even harder on them, and plagues spread throughout their lands. These plagues may have been aftershocks from the Cyprian plague which spread through the Roman Empire decades earlier. Tiridates' sister, although a pagan, has visions from God, telling her to instruct her brother to free Gregory from the pit if they wish the plague to subside. Though his hatred of the man runs deep, Tiridates was desperate to restore stability to his kingdom, and orders that if Gregory was still alive, he was to be removed from the pit. And so, after 14 years, an older, skinnier, but equally pious Gregory is dragged before Tiridates again. Alright, now here's where things get weird like very weird somewhere during the plague tiridades was transformed into a boar yeah like a wild pig with horns kind of boar i'm trying to read between the lines here perhaps the plague had made him look kind of hairy and disheveled i don't know i i said i'd include the mythical elements and here's where we got to i don't think he was actually a boar but maybe he was With Gregory still living after spending 14 years in a hole in the ground, and Tiridates being transformed into a boar, it becomes painfully clear which god was the all-powerful one. Hint, it wasn't Tiridates. Boar King Tiridates and his sister break down and beg Gregory for his forgiveness, despairing at the state of their empire. Tiridates at this point was apparently only able to grunt and snort while foaming at the mouth, but I guess the message was clear enough. Gregory calmly assessed the situation. Food shortages, rebellion and plague have ravaged Armenia. It was immediately obvious that this was God's judgement. Gregory tells Tiridates he needs to reject his faith of false idols and repent, and accept the one true God as the saviour of your kingdom. Then, and only then, will your lands know prosperity again. Tiridates snorted in agreement, and with the help of his old friend by his side again, he begins the healing process. A church is built on the grounds where Ripsema and her companions were killed by Diocletian. The church is still around today, known as the St. Heripsim Church. We've got a picture of it on our website. With the church built, Tiridates formally renounces his idol worship and begs Gregory's forgiveness for the brutal treatment he made him endure all those years ago. With his forgiveness, Tiridates' body becomes less like a boar Apparently he could talk again, but was still somewhat boar-like. I don't know, maybe he could stand on two legs at this point. Gregory's crusade of Christianity starts off with the zealousness and quickness he was known for. First off, King Tiridates and his immediate family are converted by Gregory personally. After this, Gregory, aware of the need to scale, begins training priests on how to convert others. While the priests get to work, Tiridates and Gregory tour Armenia, preaching the benefits of Christianity to the masses. As the two made their way cross-country, stories of the miracles Gregory worked followed them. It was said that through the power of the Lord, Gregory could heal sufferers of the plague and restore sight to the blind. Trepidation turned to excitement as many flocked to them to be baptized and washed clean of their sins they were only recently aware of. After the larger urban centers received the good word, Tyrodes and Gregory traveled to the furthest corners of Armenia Converting and preaching as they went, but also destroying idols and temples of false gods. The various idols mentioned are Anahid, Tiridates' personally favoured god, Belshaman, the Syrian god of the sun, Aramaz, the father of all other gods, Nain, the goddess of war, and Mithra, the Persian Zoroastrian god of justice. In between pulverizing statues, Gregory has a vision of Jesus descending. Striking earth with a golden hammer. In the specific spot where the hammer blow landed, Gregory determined this is God's will to build the largest place of worship ever constructed in his name. Although he didn't know at the time, Gregory was directing the construction of the very first cathedral in the world. Amazingly, it still exists today. The name, Etchmiadzin translating to Descent of the Only Begotten Son. We've got a picture of this place on our website too. These counter-purges from Christianity would come to mark the beginning of a new era in the next centuries, as the classical world of paganism was washed away. With it went the fascination of Greek philosophy, art, education, and sexual liberality. In just over 200 years later, Byzantine Emperor Justinian I would close the doors to the School of Athens, the last major Greek philosophical school. Slowly but surely, the intellectuals of the West would head to the Persian court in the East to escape the persecution of the Church. How the tables would turn. But all of that was in the future, and to the contemporaries of the time, Armenia's conversion to this new religion would have seemed a freak occurrence with no indication of it becoming the norm. Gradually, through fasting, repentance and prayer, Boar King Tiridates begins to return to the form of a man. Firstly, he learns to walk upright, but still had many Boar-like features, and finally, after more repentance, he shook off the tusks and bristles and became fully human once again. With the new religion spreading organically through Armenia, the next step was the creation of an education system to match it. With an army of recently baptized Christians burning with religious fervour, Tiridates and Gregory marched back across Armenia, forcing Christianity on those who rejected the first round of baptisms. Ancient temples dedicated to the old gods of Armenia are smashed to pieces without mercy. The treasures from these temples are melted down and distributed among the barons in order to keep stability during this revolutionary time. Christian sources tell of a holy battle waged against demons who tried to stop them from destroying one of the temples. I think if there were only pagan sources they would tell a very different story. Tiridati's personal story of being turned from a man to a boar and back to a man at the will of God seemed to attract more curious people. I mean, can you blame them? I'd turn out to see that for sure. From the countryside, people flock to hear the story, and around 9,000 of them are converted in a string of baptisms over 20 days. With such massive converts, Gregory's focus moves from ideological to managerial, and he begins to implement the Blueprint for the hierarchy of the clergy we still see today in the Eastern Orthodox Church. After putting himself forward as the first patriarch or leader, Gregory picks the most astute and talented priests he could find for overseers or bishops in the larger cities across Armenia. In order to entice the political elite clinging to the old gods, Gregory approaches the sons of prominent nobles, offering them high roles in his church if they agree to abandon their ancestral gods. A clever way to maintain church stability, as many of these new men now owe their status to it, and now have a political and spiritual reason for ensuring the survival of the church. Historian Richard Hovindersen has this to say about it. Quote, The conversion of Armenia to Christianity was probably the most crucial step in its history, It turned Armenia sharply away from its Iranian past and stamped it for centuries with an intrinsic character as clear to the native population as to those outside its borders who identified Armenia almost at once as the first state to adopt Christianity. After putting together the framework for the first Christian nation on earth, Gregory embarks on the first few of his self-imposed exiles. Religious seclusion in early Christianity was practiced as a method of getting closer to God. The idea of depriving yourself of all worldly indulgences was a way of showing your devotion to your creator. It's very possible that Gregory may well have been one of the first aesthetics, as they were to be called later on. Ascetics distanced themselves from civilized life from anywhere between a few weeks to their entire life. They would eat and drink almost nothing, subsisting on whatever they could find, catch or grow. You could find an aesthetic in caves in the middle of a desert, A tiny rock on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, in the middle of the jungle, virtually anywhere where the environment was cruel, unforgiving, and where you wouldn't want to live. My favourite is St Simeon, who was extreme, even for an aesthetic, who lived for 37 years on a 3x3 metre platform, 15 metres off the ground in the middle of the urban centre of Aleppo. He apparently did this to get away from the hordes of pilgrims who were seeking his blessings. As Gregory ages, he distances himself more and more from civilization, returning only for important spiritual and religious festivals of the church. As he's now well-renowned throughout the lands of Armenia, it becomes harder and harder for him to travel anywhere without an entourage. It seems likely that he felt stifled by his own fame, and feeling he'd completed the mission God had given to him, wanted to live out his final days humbly and quietly. But this was difficult to do as the leader of the church, so Gregory passes a mantle to his son, Aristarchus, that's his son from the very start. It's unclear if the two maintained contact throughout his life or whether this was a last-minute appointment. With his legacy firmly in place, Gregory the Illuminator departs for the hills once again and lives out his last few years of his life in seclusion, seeing his most favoured disciples only occasionally. And in the year 331, Gregory's body is found by one of his disciples, finally heading off to see his beloved creator at 74 years of age. It's hard to understate the influence Gregory had on Armenian culture. Not long after his death, the Roman Emperor Constantine I would make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. From a tiny heretical cult in the backwater of the world, Gregory's religion had now become the state religion for most of the civilized world. Over the next few hundred years, the Christian church would go through many intense debates, but through Gregory's efforts, the Armenian church, and by proxy, its people, would remain united and consolidated while empires would tear each other apart over theological differences. Nowadays, Gregory is remembered throughout the Christian East in hymns, prayers, church carvings and artwork, and most prominently, religious icons. Icons are a kind of oddity of the Eastern Christian Church. They're tiny fragments of skin or clothing or bone, supposedly belonging to a person that was considered to be holy. They're believed to have magical powers based on the saints, such as the ability to heal, grant good luck, be prosperous, have a good marriage, etc., etc. So it's no surprise there are a few surviving icons of St. Gregory. His entire right hand is on display at a church in Lebanon, His head is apparently somewhere in Armenia, and countless churches all across the land supposedly have tiny fragments of his skin. We've got a picture of a few of these on our website. I'm not a religious person myself, but I've always enjoyed the mysticism of Eastern Christianity, and I think Gregory is really a pioneer of this. When I think of Armenia, I picture a Christian enclave with deep-rooted traditions and culture, a proud people that would suffer terribly at the hands of their neighbours later on. Fleeing persecution, Armenians would find themselves in all manner of places around the world, the common linkage being a deep-set culture and religion, the foundations of which were made by St. Gregory. His self-imposed exile and ascetic lifestyles would be replicated over centuries, with thousands seeking a more pious life. Unflinching in his faith, even if only 10% of the tortures he endured are true, he was clearly devoted to his god. Spirituality aside, he was also gifted in his ability to think long-term, and by creating such a successful framework for his church, he allowed it to scale after his death. I'll finish you off with a portion of a 7th century hymn translated from Armenian. O happy Lord, St. Gregory, minister of sanctity and leader of the rational flock, we have you for a mediator with Jesus, the only begotten and an intercessor on behalf of those who have allied themselves with you. Hasten to ask forgiveness for our sins, for us, discipled by you. Mm, I bet that sounded less wordy in Armenian. A huge thank you to the show's Patreon supporters, Claudia, Tom, Malcolm and Roll. A lot of people don't realize this, but this is a one-man show, so there's a big chunk of time that goes into research, writing, editing, and all that. I love sharing these stories, and it means a lot knowing you guys are enjoying them. Your contributions help me keep the lights on, sound libraries, web hosting, books, and all that. If you're not a patron already, we've got some really cool rewards, like having the option to read out some of the quotes we use in our episodes. If you want to go have a look, tap the link in our bio. Step
1: into the world of power, loyalty